0: Well, so we come to the final evening and the last of the paramathas, the sixth of the perfections, which is the perfection of understanding the perfection of insight. Normally translated as the perfection of wisdom, the Pajana Paramatha. The highest of the perfections are exclaimed out of all of all of them. Everything else aims at the perfection of insight, the perfection of understanding. I'm not going to go into a lot of technical details that we went into third evening when I talked about Shunyata, but of course what the perfection of insight is, is the understanding of Shunyata, That's the understanding that all things lack like intrinsic existence. <coughs> And I want to make what I talk about tonight really in two parts. One a little bit more in Buddhist theory. And then talk about the practice of it. Insight. That's a wonderful word. Wisdom, by the way, is not a good word. And I think I might have said this to you, but I'll say it again. Because in the tradition, actually Buddhists accuse... Other religious groups of having false prajna, or actually accuse other Buddhists of having false prajna as well, mm-hmm. <laughs> having false insight, false understanding about things. So it's not wisdom that's indicated, but insight or understanding. Now this understanding is the understanding that penetrates right to the very heart of things right into the very centre of reality, cutting its way to the heart of reality. Personified in Tibetan Buddhism is usually in two figures. One is very very interesting. Um, As you know, the pantheon of deities and goddesses and all sorts of things is actually one of the largest out of any religious tradition of that to be found within Tibetan Buddhism. Wisdom comes in two aspects, and I'm using your translation, or Insider Understanding comes in two aspects here. personified, externalized, seen as external images. The first, I think I mentioned, certainly one of the nine, is the figure of Manjushri. Manjushri is depicted as a beautiful youth, very soft, very gentle. Above his left shoulder, there is a book in a lotus flower, usually resting on sort of kind of pad of the lotus. And this is the tradition of it's the perfection of wisdom sutra, from which, in a sense, the whole of the Mahayana tradition derives. In his right hand, above his head, he holds a flaming sword, which is the sword of notice, the sword which cuts through. the ignorance, the delusion, it binds us to Sangsara. But on the whole, Manjushri is a fairly gentle-looking character. However, that's not the end of the story and the depiction of insight in the Tibetan tradition. They have another figure who's a little less pleasing, and his name is Yamantaka, oh and in Tibetan. Dojidikse is um, well, ferocious is the word. <laughs> he has 34 arms, 9 heads and 19 legs. I wonder how he gets through the door, but never mind. <laughs> in every one of his hands he has a different symbol. And I'm just going to give you, this to, um, give you a feel for the different forms of wisdom. In every hand he has a um, a different implement. And some of them are pretty ferocious. There are things like a flailing knife, you know, cutting the skin off animals. There are things like a, what's called a kadvanga, which is actually a kind of trident. that has got heads impaled on it. He drinks from a skull cup full of brimming blood. He wears a garland of severed heads. Now this is a kind of wisdom or insight that doesn't tolerate fools lightly. <laughs> and it represents the more dynamic
1: aspect of insight.
0: Any of you have delved into even just a tiny, tiny bit of Tibetan Buddhism, just even out a curiosity to have a look at all these images that populate the world of Tibetan Buddhism, we will find that there are two major forms, and I've just described them just in one example in the perfection of inside, which is the peaceful and wrathful deities as they're usually referred to the peaceful is obviously manjushri softer, more gentle, more coaxing it still has a pretty hard sword though when it comes down on you it's rather guillotine-like or there is a much more dynamic powerful version which is and cutting its way through to the heart of reality in a very dynamic fashion. It will not rest. And actually, Yamantaka, actually, the name itself means the conqueror of death. That which conquers death. That which conquers the death, which is Sangsara. He trampled, by the way, is uh, depicted usually stamping on some creatures. Uh, which depicts the corpses of ego <laughs> because that's what has to be relinquished in all of this so insight comes in two forms it comes in a slow, gentle, peaceful way and it comes in a very dynamic form and in many ways the, the shunyata which is talked about is actually a very dynamic way magajana within the tradition this is, in a sense, the technical part of the all Nagajana within the tradition is somebody who blasts through opinions, ideas and everything else about the nature of the real what it is we inhabit the ultimate result really is the real is beyond word the real is beyond the imprint as he puts it of language however you and I and all everybody else is immersed in it in language As we mentioned certainly when we talked about Shunita, our very language speaks of certain entities which we perhaps go on searches for, one of them being the self. We have these predicates of experience which us to looking for the self which is underlying as the substratum for their existence. Nagarjuna tries to show us, and I'm not going to go into the detail, I'm just going to give you a taste of it. Nagarjuna tries to show us that in fact no theory, no idea about the way things are really holds up to close scrutiny. When I'm teaching my undergraduate students in the university, I usually describe this figure in the garden as a, a kind of philosophical virus. He gets inside other people's systems and destroys them from within. (laughs) What he does is he takes the very foundation of the thinking which constitutes any religious philosophical system and shows how it's flawed. How in fact the ultimate opposite can be shown as a consequence coming out of that system. It's a very neat sleight of hand. And the cousin sits rather smugly back and says, I have no theory, I can't be refuted. Because <laughs> he doesn't hold on to any theory about the way things are. Now, what, how does this touch us? This is kind of seemingly in the realms of Buddhist metaphysical, philosophical thinking. Well, it does touch us. It touches us in many, many ways. And the most obvious way is, of course, forget thinking our theories can ever bring us to the real. Forget it. None of the theories, according to the argument will bring us to it. In fact, the only way we can go about bringing ourselves to the real, if we're immersed in having opinions, having theories, having views about things, is actually by showing how false they are. Actually by taking them apart. Now this doesn't have to be in a big philosophical way, it just means watch what we say, and you'll see that we're usually saying something is, or something isn't. The two extremes of the logic that we have. Something is, or it isn't. And he tries to show that Shantadeva, I won't go into Shantadeva chapter because it's so complicated. (laughs) But uh, it's not suitable you know, for a kind of talk like this. But both of them try to show how none of these have any purchase on reality whatsoever. None of the theories, none of the things that come out of your mouth or my mouth have any real ultimate purchase on the real. It doesn't describe it. The real remains ineffable. All we have as an approach to the real, perhaps is something we would call via negativa going via the negative saying what something isn't those of you familiar with the bible you know from Paul, Corinthians know that what Paul does when he tries to describe love is say what it isn't not what it is however we you, I, seem to be immersed and trapped within theorisation. We can't (coughs) avoid it. We seem to be full of opinions about all sorts of things. From the mundane to the sublime, we are full of opinions. We are opinionated in our lives. And so the view is... there is no view. There is no view about the nature of the real, only to describe it as shunyata, lacking intrinsic existence. So any view itself lacks intrinsic existence. And the reason being, perhaps, and this is within the description of why it must be the case is because everything is dependently originated everything comes into being dependent on causes and conditions and even Shindita itself comes into being dependent on causes and conditions without their being a positing something like intrinsic existence to things there wouldn't be the need for shunyata to wipe it away. So, the synonym, and this is bringing us back into a little bit of practical, I suppose, theory in some ways, practical Buddhist ideas, is the synonym for shunyata is a sense of origination, cutting out the father in the Sanskrit. Pratyatamapada, that which brings other things into being, independence. The outer circle on this, on the wheel of life, depicts mm. a pictorial representation of the soul links which are said to make up Pratyatama Pada, to make up the chain mm. of interdependent origination and remember anything that is interdependently originated cannot have real substantial existence in the solid sense of the word and it all starts off with our old favourite avidya ignorance kind of positive non-knowing about things depicted actually in this wheel is by a blind man sometimes it's a blind man leading a blind man and I think it's very indicative (coughs) that the whole cycle the whole vicious circle of samsara, starts with not knowing but not just not knowing, in the sense that if I gave you X and Y and Z and lots and lots of information, that suddenly everything would be alright. But more the case that I have this view about the way things are, opinion about the way things are, and I refuse to see what is. I actually positively refuse to see it no matter how often it's pointed out. Now, in a sense, that reflects on us all, because you might have heard some of these teachings many times that we've been through in the week, or certainly some of the ideas, and I wouldn't, wouldn't expect many of them to be vastly new ideas, perhaps, even things you've come across yourself. But the big problem, as we know, as I was expressing last night, is we don't live them. I really never have connected. It's still a vidya that we're living. We're still living in the life of non-knowledge, of not really knowing in this heartfelt sense that I tried to stress throughout the week. Remember my example? It's like saying to somebody, well, you know, Smoking is bad for you, or drinking is bad for you. and keep saying it, and then you say, oh, Of course, I know it's bad for me, and still continue. That's us. We say, Of course, we know it's bad for us behaving in these ways, acting in this, this manner that we do, we create dukkha. But we still do it. Seems rather perverse, doesn't it? <laughs> in many ways we still continue to do that which we know through experience, through nothing else is actually bad for us deleterious to our health perhaps is a way of putting it certain forms of behaviour we just know are going to give rise to pain but there we are compulsively addicted to it so there has to be some way of breaking it some way of breaking the chain Now, in the Wheel of Life, in the depiction of dependent origination, engaging in all this behavior through ignorance, through, I'm going to use the old translation, ignorance, or avidya, leads us, leads us almost ineluctably into having habits, formations, as they're called, samskaras. And the depiction in the wheel is usually of a man making pots, forming things out of the clay. And that's us, again, forming out of our lives solid entities, which are the habits that we inhabit. (laughs) Or that wonderful phrase I think I mentioned to you, the habit that moves in and doesn't leave. Have you ever noticed (laughs) those? And also the problem with habits is, as is often stressed in the material of the text, again in this particular instance across all traditions, once somebody does something once and follows up by doing something a second time, it becomes so much easier just to keep on doing it. And that can be really from the mildest unwholesome act to the most severe unwholesome act. You often hear, for example, soldiers in war saying, the first killing is difficult, thereafter it becomes easy to do it. So that's how extreme it can be. Most of our habits, luckily, are not of that form. But they're deeply, deeply embedded in them. And if you sit here now, just here now, what you sit here with, unfortunately, I think the depressing news is we all sit here with our ignorance and our habits. Now, in the traditional viewpoint, they say, for example, that both these first two links in the chain of dependent origination are what come from the previous lifetime. Previous lifetime, how long ago was that? Was it your teenage years, was it even earlier than that, or was it two weeks ago? Perhaps your previous lifetime. The way you've built up your habits through a perpetual clinging to certain ways things are. Now, so of course, the other thing you find yourself with at this moment, as you sit here, and perhaps sometimes seems a burden, is what's called consciousness we sit here with our consciousness right here, right now sanskaras give rise to consciousness habits give rise to consciousness because we are conscious of doing certain things in a certain way again and again and again and again and in Buddhism it's interesting that consciousness isn't anything in itself consciousness only arises independence on an object so consciousness isn't anything in itself so object, consciousness, object thesis, consciousness thesis. new object comes
1: up, new consciousness
0: <coughs> so consciousness always has an object and one of the first objects it always has, <coughs> certainly when we think about ourselves, is our habits. <coughs> that which is deeply ingrained into us, which we think constitutes our identity. which think We think are us. <coughs> That's how deeply ingrained they are. This is why, why we get so upset when challenged about certain of our habits. I'm not even talking about anything extreme, but something somebody else recognises (laughs) in you and says, why do you keep doing that? And you go, well, it's it's because. It's me. (laughs) That's the way I do things. (coughs) And so it's deeply ingrained in us so much that it feels like part of our identity and when it's just challenged in these ordinary simple ways we get very defensive about it very very defensive and if we do it to others you'll see the same response from them. people recognise this by the way you seen this when you're challenged how you feel you're attacked and well, when you do it to somebody else they feel under attack because of it I and mean, it's such a common phenomenon yet we all think that we are these bunch of habits when we're not so consciousness Is there, and consciousness is usually depicted, interestingly, as a monkey, (laughs) because it leaps all over the place, (laughs) doesn't it? Depending on which object takes its fancy, (laughs) you know, where the monkeys look, swinging from branch to branch, whichever particular object takes its fancy. Well, consciousness doesn't exist alone, does it? Yeah. The one thing I suppose we do notice is that we're embodied phenomena too. And they have something called Nama Rupa. Is name and form. Well, name actually, Nama means any of the mental constituents that are around. Form obviously means yes. this, the physical body. So consciousness is an embodied consciousness. It's not kind of just floating around out there for us. It's actually deeply embodied. And if we have this body, we get part of the package, (laughs) six senses in Buddhism. But actually you get an extra one in Buddhism. Um, You have the five plus one. The, The five senses, the five normal senses, plus the mental sense. And what does the mental sense do? It senses mental objects that we have. Just in the same way that the ear hears, the nose smells, well it actually does mean, <laughs> working better than the mind is at the moment. <laughs> Our, you know, the body touches, the tactile sense as well. So the mind itself senses the mental objects. This is usually depicted, again, in representations of a house with five windows and a door. In other words, the world enters for us through those senses. Then we get, of course, now this is really getting into the psychological material and this is quite important here because this is the way that we build up our past. We get contact simply by having eyes, ears, nose, tongue and a body to feel with and a mental sense as well then we automatically get contact with things my hand touches a piece of cloth my ears hear what is outside and my mind obviously contacts the mental objects which are arising in it. Contact is a very intimate relationship between the world and us. We can't exist and I mean I know there are these experiments that have complete deprivation, but in ordinary in the ordinary world it's an intimate relationship. We can't exist without contacting the world in some way. even if we're blind and deaf we have touch, smell, often and we certainly have all the mental stuff going on and so we can't exist, as I say without inhabiting the world feeling, palpating, touching the world in some way and being touched by it as well and out of that contact and by the way, this is showing the intimacy of because it's depicted by a couple embracing here in the representation. Out of that contact immediately arises a good old favourite called Vedana in Sanskrit. Vedana is feeling. But let's not get all emotional about it because it's not emotional feeling. <laughs> it's just feeling, it's the bare sensory input that we get that arises in us, saying, I like this, I dislike this, and I neither like or dislike this. As I said to you, certainly in the early part of the retreat, I'm afraid to say that covers all of our psychological sensitives, our ways of thinking about things. What yeah. <laughs> ambivalence? will fall in the middle. Or it can be, for example, ambivalence. Um, I'll say this very briefly because I'm going to move on, but very briefly, ambivalence can arise because a moment of like arises, followed immediately by a moment of dislike, followed by a moment of like. So it's a fluctuating thing. No, you know, like and dislike can't, in the Buddhist idea, exist in the same consciousness moment but because it's happening so fast it appears as if there is like and dislike at the same time that's all and so contact arises immediately on So feeling arises immediately on contact with something it's like that, isn't it? usually might be in the grey area but mostly it's in the kind of polarised end like or dislike interestingly of course this is what's used often in meditation practices to actually examine our likes and our dislikes to see them very clearly in terms of our feelings. This is particularly up and in Vipassana what we get is of course the examination of I've got a pleasant feeling is that an unpleasant feeling? Or was it a neither pleasant or un- unpleasant feeling? Or, is that a pleasant feeling? Does it remain a pleasant feeling? Or does it suddenly turn unpleasant? And then back to pleasant. As we know, there's nothing like the perversity of the human mind for is you know, liking and disliking. I thought you said you liked that the moment ago. <laughs> that sort of thing that happens often to our, to ourselves. In the world of relations and people, of course, this is partly the way we divide up the world, isn't it? You know, it's a pretty crude way of dividing up the world. There's those we like, those that we dislike, and those we couldn't care less about. Because <laughs> they don't come in even within our kind of field of vision most of the time. They're simply functionaries, often, and part of some of the meditation traditions. Open, try to open up the grey area, so you're really beginning to see and have compassion for, and feeling for. I mean, in the genuine sense, not in the technical sense. I'm using it here for others in that big grey area. Because it's easy, isn't it, to develop? Good feelings towards those we already care for. And this is one of the techniques that's used in in meta meditation. In meta meditation, you get you know taking somebody you like and care for as the object of your meditation. Then you take the other thing That can often be quite easy, can't it? Somebody you dislike as the object develops loving kindness or kindliness towards. But then you're asked to find somebody who doesn't fulfill either either category. Somebody who you have neither strong feelings of like for, nor strong feelings of dislike for. And they have to become somebody you can feel kindness towards. And over the years, of talking to people, doing this practice, often that's the most difficult category to find. Somebody you neither dislike or dislike, because you actually don't see them most of the time that's often just somebody who's completely functioning in your life and so it's a big area to work on in so then we get after contact feeling well, we get the big one craving craving in its three forms craving for sensory pleasure one I'm sure we all recognise well the craving for becoming which we'll see later on in in the cycle in the wheel, in the 12 links and then we have the craving for not being and we can have all three mixed up together at the same time (laughs) that's how difficult things are for us one sensory pleasures and sensory pleasures themselves can a mean, be a means to, <coughs> to obliterating ourselves in some way a hedonistic overkill where we just do too much of it but also we can be that other stuff of wanting to become wanting to perpetuate ourselves and so it's not clear that when we talk about the three forms of craving that they exist separately they're very intermixed and we wax and wane between them And also, what this leads to, of course, is craving leads to clinging, attachment. Now, bear in mind, of course, you can be attached to those things that you don't like as well. In fact, we're often more attached to the things we don't like than the things that we like. Because somehow, again, they define our things as being. clinging here interestingly of course again is depicted as a monkey generally holding on to something really refusing to let it go <coughs> it can also craving is usually depicted, and an interesting one, It's depicted as drinking <laughs> people kind of imbibing things clinging again can be depicted as holding on or picking fruit Another way it's often depicted in these representations of the Twelve Links. Well, if there's a pleasure or even sometimes something you dislike, you can't help but try to repeat it. And that's called becoming, bhava. Now think about it. (laughs) Sometimes our lives can seem like they're kind of governed by trying to satisfy the craving and by trying to manipulate all the events around us so that we get our pleasures and we continuously get them so you can even think about, you know, in, in the future, you know, when you're going back home how am I going to do things tomorrow because I can get my bit of pleasure that I normally have, that I've missed out <coughs> on for this whole week <laughs> how am I going to do it, how am I going to massage things so that I get it In a more serious sense, that's exactly what we're doing with life, all the time, massaging it, making it conform to our pleasures, trying to avoid our unpleasures, and so in a sense we're manipulating it, creating it, just perpetuating it, and so Bhava really, as much as becoming, is perpetuation of the problem, and so we perpetuate our problem, tracing it back, through the clinging and through the craving that we have. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not clear about why that's
1: becoming.
0: Why it's becoming? Because you want it to happen again. It's me. I want to happen, you know, and becoming can be either seen in terms of again future lifetimes, or if you see it can be seen in terms of this lifetime. In other words, I'm sitting here thinking now, perhaps. of. Uh, how am I going to get the thing I most enjoy when I get out? So it's about controlling the future. Yeah,
1: Activation. it's about control.
0: Yeah. It's about manipulating situations so I maximise my pleasure. Yeah. Sometimes it can be also maximising my own pleasure because that's the way I am. So the future becomes what you want. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the whole point about it. The future yeah. becomes what you want yeah. because you map out the future. In terms of my liking and my disliking, what I'm craving. What
1: would happen if we do
0: that? What would happen? Yeah. Wow, well, things would be a lot easier. <laughs> for a <start> <laughs> There'd be far less dukkha around. Um, because remember, this, yeah, the word I use is perpetuation. What we're doing is perpetuating things. We're perpetuating patterns. And in a sense, this is why it's called dependent origination, is because it's, well, it's conditioned. It's also called the, sometimes it's translated, and I think it's quite a good translation, is the of conditionality. It's the way conditioning is produced. Now you can see that, can't you? From, it becomes very clear, I think, from contact onwards, that this is the way conditioning is produced. Yeah, I contact something, I like it, I therefore decide I want more of it and if I want more of it I tend to hold on to it so I don't want anybody else to take it away from me and part of not having it taken away from me is to want to try and manipulate situations so I get more of it. Does that make sense? And
1: that's
0: what we're doing. So if you can relinquish that, actually I think it's got to come further down the chain. You've got to relinquish craving and clinging to Renounce the behavior that's going to look futurely to maximizing whatever it is you want. So, actually, the break in the chain has got to occur much earlier than that. Now, if it isn't, then it automatically gives rise, right, and that's why it's a conditioned chain. It's like, there's no choice about it. This is the way it goes. Now, that will then lead us into, this is getting into kind of future lives, because this is all to do with your present, so-called, in the um, traditional explanation. This is to do with your present, all the way up to basically becoming. And then we get birth again. In other words, you're reborn in a similar situation. Again, you can see that metaphorically and literally. You're reborn into another place but with samskara, because that's the way you build up your path from having consciousness which has already got some sanskaras going on in it and you build up yet more through the whole process until you are reborn again now <laughs> said yeah, as I think I said to you, the um, nice little spoof movie poster that they did in a tricycle about a few years ago—you know, coming to you soon—old age, sickness, and death. That's the last link in the chain, because anything that's born is going to get sick, grow old, and die and the chain is perpetuated Now you can enter this chain at any point and look at any of it and it will give rise to the same dependently arising factor This patterning, as you can see, is a psychological patterning here in terms of describing how we psychologically create Sunata The psychology creates samsara, sorry, samsara is actually also a description of the It describes the process of conditioned relations of how we build up samsara which doesn't have any inherent existence doesn't have any intrinsic existence now let me do do stress all the time when I say lack of intrinsic existence I do not mean doesn't exist it has no solid sense of anything that an essence running through it. It's pattern patterned forms of conditioning arising again and again and again until the chain is broken. Now interestingly there's a contemporary Theravada scholar who died not that many years ago called Buddha Dasa, who says that each moment of consciousness all twelve links arise we're quite clever really aren't we <laughs> all that's arising in one moment for us yeah, we're quite cleverly building Sangsara no, I'm joking about this but Sangsara is coming to being every moment because all twelve links are there every moment for
1: it. could you just say the twelve links Sure. Yeah.
0: Ignorance, formation, consciousness, name and form, six senses, contact. Yeah. We so get contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, old age, sickness, and death. Okay. That's all the final things and then round the wheel again <laughs> so you can't until you start to break it you can't get out of the cycle of samsara. so coming back to my main theme this evening insight understanding is understanding the way that we build up samsara for ourselves the way that we postulate views which attribute some kind of solidity inherent to the phenomena and even to the views themselves. There is such a thing called truth in all of this. The only truth in this sense is the truth of Shunyata. That things lack intrinsic existence. Conventional truth exists in levels of convention, what we call true, because so we know that can vary from culture to culture, it can even vary from person to person, what we would stipulate as being true, and there might be a reasonable degree of consensus, but I would think even if we examined all the views in this room about what we would call truth and what is true, we wouldn't necessarily get that heavier consensus about it. Yeah, what about Four Noble Truths? Truths, well, they're ennobling truths and they're kind of <coughs> to be taken as true truths in the sense of propositions that one has to subscribe to or believe in. So they're propositions which come to life only mm-hmm. when examined. So when we normally mean, for example, in religious truths, we usually mean unexamined truths, that they a priori are taken as being truths. It's only with experience that we understand the truth of Dukkha. <coughs> yes, yeah, Martin? Um, how does awareness <coughs> relate um, about consciousness,
1: consciousness and awareness, given by coming from awareness, so how does that relate to
0: how does it relate? Well, awareness is the awareness of the dependent arising of any given phenomena. So, for example, the most common one used, and it's particularly used in the vipassana tradition, is to actually see the arising of like and dislike, or neutrality, neither like nor dislike, immediately on the contact of either sensation or a feeling. And then, obviously, sometimes tracing the subsequent clinging and cravings that that induces so, or even the opposite, the aversion which it induces for that phenomena so the first stage of insight is seeing the process itself Can so the awareness be related to the person, but doesn't actually exist? The awareness is, well, the awareness is there within the process which is mind okay. it's not there as a person, itself, or a personhood is a very good way of describing what we are without the solid self yeah. within it so awareness is just a function something which is going on within this process and continuum that we are
1: and,
0: that's, and that means it's to that side. Really that's right yeah that's right because Nagarjuna describes for example and i just say this because you might think and some people have and it's I noticed the book even in the library here, actually, where one particular writer interprets Shunyata as being an absolute. Shunyata is the the real absolute underlying all things. Totally wrong. (laughs) Shunyata is the absence of all absolutes, including Shunyata itself. Because, as Magadhana says, if you really, really are incurable, and you want to make Shunyata into a something. then actually you'll find... That shunyata is empty of inherent existence, of intrinsic existence. And if you get into that game, you get into an infinite regression of shunyata. So that's, just clinging
1: and becoming.
0: that's clinging and becoming. That's wanting to try and find the thing to cling to. And so this is the total antidote to clinging and craving. <laughs> There is nothing to cling to at all. Now, when we talk about insight in the way that I started off this evening, we're talking about the penetrating insight that sees into the reality of that and really, really takes it on board as <coughs> a kind of bodily experience of that. Because you can start off with bodily experience itself, sensation.
1: wouldn't he say the fully awakened mind break that shame at the first link which as I think I understand is the about how he didn't recognize people until I started speaking Mm. so it's like does nothing there until so the
0: kind of the like that well, to a certain degree. I mean, one way of describing the awakened experience is of course that you're not operating out of avidya at all, because there is no avidya. That's the awakened experience. Mm-hmm. So you're not creating a cycle of dependence. In fact, this is why even in the Mahamudra tradition, or specifically in the Mahamudra tradition, why what you're aiming at is the spontaneous ground, So, in other words, spontaneity does not exist within samsara. It's all conditioned production. Everything within it is conditioned. So, in a sense, until we really make contact with the ground, and and using the Mahamudra description, or even sometimes the Dzogchen description, until you make contact with the ground of awareness from which all acts arise, then there can be no really spontaneous <coughs> acts of compassion no real spontaneous acts of insight So this is why um, people who appear
1: to be aware to some degree are incredibly spontaneous yes. and surprising
0: That's right. yeah. yes. It's that spontaneous, that freedom that comes from a ground which in itself is no thing
1: No. Mm. Mm. So, is um, <coughs> it's really simple, ignorant terms. You, you don't
0: make any judgment at all, You just observe, hmm. participate, forget. And respond. You respond to what is there, you don't respond in other ways, in the way that we normally would respond, which is in terms of conditionality. Putting very simple language terms, it's a stimulus and a response. I see something, I see somebody, I like them and I dislike them and I respond according to my conditioned contact and feeling that I have
1: towards and the next time, them. you say the next time you see them you start all over again?
0: Yeah. So every day, every response is a new response to a new situation in a sense to a new person. Okay. That's the complete opposite because ours, we're worth walking around in a world where we fix things. And people, in order to deal with them yeah. and so I think I made a kind of crude example the other night the person who's perhaps done one good action to you but then follows up with a whole sequence of bad actions it takes quite a long time to cotton on <laughs> because you're still responding to the first act or perhaps even the second act that they've done to you so we six of them And we like to do that. One of the things I mentioned again, I'm kind of bringing in stuff we did the other other night, is that we often fix people through their profession, through what they do. A big one, of course, through gender too. With all the prejudices which are involved with that. Within patriarchal societies. There's an enormous number of ways that we fix And generally fixing is to manipulate. That's the important thing to remember. In solidifying, making something static, rather than seeing it as a process, you know, in each one of you are processes out there, you're not things. You're not like that table, which is still changing, but it's changing at a rate which is not identifiable, or so readily identifiable. Yeah, you know, we could change that by pouring petrol over and setting fire to it, <laughs> but that's a bit extreme, yes. It's less than its own, it doesn't change or appear to change that much, whereas we change continuously, simply by consciousness itself being nothing in itself other than the objects that appear to it. So we're changing all the time. Yes, <laughs> <coughs>
1: He's been keen to emphasise there in several of these reports this week that Nirvana involves experience theory of the suka extractor in the uh, the kind of independent origination. A VDR is said to give rise to some child and then have to consciousness. Is that a VDR that's being
0: unloaded consciousness? A Vinyama. Vinyama, yeah. Um, does
1: this not imply that if, if we remove a VDR, then we eliminate the possibility of experience?
0: No. <laughs> All it means is you eliminate the possibility of tainted experience. This is what's being got at. It's not so much that vijnana will disappear, consciousness. We're not talking about the Buddha being not conscious. What we're talking about is tainted consciousness. Consciousness which is full of, you know, I haven't put the detail in, but it's not full of quashes or afters. You <coughs> yeah, know, kleshas are the defilement, and the asabas, The the yeah, is a beautiful word actually, it means esmeralance.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe all the crap that's in your mind. <laughs> you know, the Buddha doesn't have that, but he still has vinyana. But it's, it's an open vinyana, it's a consciousness which responds, in other words, in a different way, because it's not conditioned by the craving, the clinging, and the greed, hatred, and delusion, which are at the very centre of the wheel itself. So we're not eliminating the possibility of experience. What we're doing is we're eliminating the possibility of defiled experience, which is tainted by greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the chief articles which are operating first. But do we need to qualify
1: all, all the methods
0: in such uh, Um delusional? Defiled, yes. Yeah, you can do, you can do. you <coughs> take Well, that's a moot point. <laughs> what we'll get is, is, you won't get the other eleven at all. What you'll get is, certainly, you'll have name and form, you'll have consciousness, but you will not get contact giving, well, you might get contact giving rise right to feeling, but the feeling is not then going to automatically give rise to craving or it's the opposite, which is aversion. So really what you're talking about is actually, if you're trying to bring your model in, which is another way I often do it, but if you want to bring that model in, what you're talking about is consciousness up until Vedana it's still there. But after Vedana it will give rise simply to acts which are undefiled acts coming from generosity Compassion and understanding. That's all. And so, you know, certainly birth, old age, and death are not going to occur in the sense that it's implied in the normal way because this is the end of samsara. There is nothing left to carry over, in other words. (laughs) Um, Because I'm in Mary.
1: Contact and feeling always matters, right? It's the insight needed at that point
0: there, that's the feeling. Mm-hmm. That's where it like. yep. it like it's needed. As soon as the feeling arrives, oh, I like that. You, you, you need to come in with a with some kind of. Well, to see it within the tradition, and I don't want to go too much into it, but the in the tradition is the point. It's either at the point of contact. Where you create the gap, and so feeling doesn't automatically arise in terms of the three distinctions of feeling. Or the other is to, as you rightly say, to block it a feeling. So you don't carry it through. That's right. It doesn't go to the next stage, which you're going to be craving. Mm. That's an, um, part of my question.
1: Um, <coughs> the other is that between craving and pain. There is a possibility of working with in terms
0: of your Yeah, there's a possibility all the way through. Um, but what it's saying is normally this is a fairly automatic process. We don't get a lot of chance. And this is why I think the extreme version of the Buddha Dharma saying it all arises in one moment. Yeah, because it's so quick. It's like that, you know, you find yourself clinging before you've known how you got there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is a possibility. If you, can, if you can become aware at any point in the chain, mm. Yeah, I mean for example if you can become aware that actually the way you're going to be acting is out of ignorance or avidya, there's a huge possibility of changing the whole thing. But mostly we don't even see that because the avidya <coughs> and the samskaras are so deeply embedded in us that we're going automatically through the chain. So actually we're working mainly on the past and contact through to becoming. That's the part we're mainly working on in terms of meditative practice where we're trying to gain insight into the process and the way that we build up our conditioned responses to things. But it's not easy. (laughs) Insight is not easy. So insight is is insight into this chain, the way this chain works. And then understanding, of course, the chain itself lacks inherent existence. because it is dependent arising. And anything which is a chain can't substantially exist. Which is why you can dissolve it too. How how, um you you talk about when it's being
1: associated with the Mm process? Um what
0: Well, we can talk about it in a a kind of metaphor, which is the widening of the field of vision. Normally, our field of vision is quite blinkered. And awareness is widening it out, and we tend to to take in much more of the picture. Now, when we're in our very blinkered state, of course, we're just operating almost automaton-like. That would be the lack of awareness. The moment I say, hang on a second, why am I working like that? Why am I in this position? at First to noble Truth, why have I suddenly discovered that I'm in a position or experiencing pain or anxiety or distress or whatever you want to call it, in a similar way, it widens it the because I'm now going to start to look for the causes of why I'm doing that, and so therefore, it's this widening process that you're going on. Awareness is a kind of can opener that opens up what is, it's the tool. Questioning is part of that as well, I might add. And traditionally, within Buddhist traditions, questions are there to open up the nature of the phenomena that we're dealing with. So, why is quite a good quite a good question here? It's the question which widens your awareness of things, and so that's what's going on. It's the widening of awareness when we say that somebody has changed, become more aware.
1: Would you say that there's an, an energetic component for that? How do you
0: energetic?
1: Well, it's hard to say. Mm. Um, well, again, I suppose it comes back from my experience around so these various applied features, and that seems to be when... Uh, well, I said it's a transfer of energy, which is that's also transfer kind of,
0: of awareness of some kind, mm. so that the quality of awareness has what well, I can only describe it as an energetic component, which kind of carries. I not Well, I, I think I suppose if I was using those terms, which are not ones I tend to use myself, <laughs> but I mean, I would describe it as moving from morbid awareness to dynamic awareness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In other words, there's a morbidity about most of the awareness that we have, it's kind of dead. Yeah. yeah, that's what we talk about: people being unaware, thick-skinned. Yeah. Um, but it becomes more active. what you calling energetic? When so it becomes more dynamic, so increasing the dynamics of it. Was well,
1: experienced physically. I think that's yeah. what I'm, the sort of, the kind of intellectual. Activity. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not implying
0: any of this is intellectual. No. it's much more just a dynamic process which is going on within all of us if we will let it. If we will. Energize it, give it attention. You know, I'm using metaphors here, which is very difficult because we're talking about something which is part of a process. But it's that movement from thick skinnedness, unawareness, insensitivity, to sensitization that we're moving towards. That is what awareness is. It's also a sensitization. Now, most of us are fairly desensitized in certain areas and varies from person to person. And if one was saying again as a, a kind of generalised statement, and bear in mind generalised statements don't statement, statement, always hold totally, but as a generalised statement would have passed in one of a path towards sensitization, because it's certainly, for example, a sensitization towards others, a mover towards a sensitization also towards the physical world that we inhabit. A sensitization towards our own mortality. Our own impermanence, All of which we can be unaware and thick-skinned about. And so the path is that path of sensitization. I'm not going to go into it again, but the way, for example, I try to make you you bring some awareness into the idea of even simple things like bodily gestures on one of the evenings. You know, how we can instantiate, we can be gestures of awareness and gestures of compassion. Our body can show that. Our features can show that. Or they can show the complete and utter opposite of that. They can be desensitized, insensitive gestures desensitized and sensitive faces that we often show towards each other. And so when I take it a talk about sensitization here, awareness, which is a synonym here, it's that complete awareness of what I'm doing with my body, my mind, in total, not leaving anything out. And this body-mind is also this witnessing presence in this world and we can be completely and
1: utterly cut off
0: because we are narrowly confined down to our own small areas of concern, rather than having this wider sense of encompassment of being able to encompass almost in a mandala-like fashion the world
1: yes (coughs) Martin I think we've got line in the last few days with this fine year of and how and have this unit or I think I can have huge implications and repercussions throughout uh, the whole of you know the whole of the world mm-hmm. you know, all the because one is following one after another. And then, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what mess the world is. Mm. And, you know, you, feel, you can you can feel a certain point in position in the matter. And then, this idea that fear of being interconnected, it doesn't feel about stepping forward to do something, about, we if if one's not, if one's built for the Self, and has a sense of self. Mm. But if you don't know, you can't know if you're lacking.
0: but the, the intention is the important part about it. Yeah. we can never know what our ultimate end of our acts come to OK, so the question then has to well, spending more time doing all the trees rather than life, etc. with the intention
1: of awakening us? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Trying to,
0: I and mean it's something that's quite relevant you know, to me at the know Anything like right that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um well, <laughs> I mean, we talked about. The, I mean, let me start with the first part of what you're saying. We can never know the ultimate intent, the ultimate ends of our act We cannot see it. We are. We're not on this ship. Unless
1: you're. Mm,
0: well, even even within the Buddhist traditions there are disputes about the omniscience of the Buddha. I'm not going to get into that one. But, given that is the case, this is where we are. We're not awakened. None of us are in this room. We're not awakened. So we do not know the ends of our actions. However, the one thing we do know is about our intentions. Behind our acts. I'm trying to get clear about What those intentions are behind our act. Now, if I act, let's say, with a good heart, and that's quite difficult to do, not just the kind of mental intention up here, which is an intellectual thing, but I'm acting with a good heart. I'm genuinely wanting good to come from this particular act. And okay, we might not know the ends of it, but at least. Yeah. this is wholesome behaviour whereas the opposite is the case you know, if we are acting from unwholesome intention, from an unwholesome heart again we still don't know what the ends of it are going to be but probably it's going to be pretty nasty like the unexamined act that I said just the kind of flippant gesture the flippant brusque remark that we can make to people and how it's going to snowball, how it's going to ramify through other people's lives touching so many because as you said interdependence is, is our state of being which is what it is in terms of and I'm not quite following how the second part led on but in, in terms of the second part of your question doing retreats and living in life you know making the mess of it as you put you know this has got to feed into that Retreat no matter how long or how short, have got to feed into our intentional acts within ordinary life. As I've said a number of times, it's no good as having the best intentions. I can sit here, for example, because it's peaceful, things are set up in such a way as to be a very pleasant environment. I can think here and have wonderful thoughts about others, but if I don't have them down in the world, out in the world in ordinary day to day life, it doesn't mean a job. I mean, I've been quite brutal about it, it really doesn't mean a job. That's where it's got to be in those ordinary acts. Maybe we could come back with, say, doing something like a tribute, something like that, with the intention. Basically, what i talking about putting off the being in the
1: world.
0: It can be for some, I wouldn't want to make an equivocal answer yes or no about that, it can be for some, some people might have to go through that kind of training to do it, is all I can say, Um, for others it might not be so necessary, their actual place of work is in the world, doing it, not divorcing the world. Traditionally, of course, big retreats, long retreats have been part of the traditions. Perhaps in the West we're moving into, and perhaps this is going to be the difference between East and West, is into a much more socially engaged, socially active form of Buddhism, which isn't necessarily about monasteries and retreats. And the retreat might be for simply the way that we come, you know, the place we come to, to intensify our practice, to go back out into the world, to go back out with the strength and with the stability of mind to engage with people. That's just a personal view. About yeah. Yeah. Question
1: from last night. Okay. <laughs> Would you asked me to write oh, okay. uh, about
0: Subtle mind and subtle thought, yeah, I mean, yeah, there are the I mean, within certain traditions, I'm going to go into the detail of that, I'm going to give you a broad picture again, as I try to do, They talk about gross mind and subtle mind, gross mind is the mind of, you know, of dependent co-origination, that's the gross mind, that's the mind that's operative in the creating created Thangsara. Subtle mind is mind that we've been talking about so often through this retreat. the mind that isn't trapped in that way. They actually call this the real nature of the mind. Now I'm not going to go into the broad details because it doesn't mean I have to go into different traditions. You know, I'm just giving a kind of broad answer. Because the traditions have specific answers to what constitutes the subtle mind. So the viewpoint within one Mahayana tradition, like the Matra is going to be quite different from that within the Madhyamaka. And those are just two broad philosophical book at it. But they all agree there is something below the gross mind. Now, in in the psychological material, um, there are increasingly subtle forms of consciousness. For example, in the Abhidharma material. So that you've got you know, the form consciousness and then you have formless consciousnesses which are usually only the consciousnesses of either those which are associated with jhanic states the states of meditative absorption, or those possessed by arahats. Arahats being awakened ones. They're not buddhas, but they're awakened ones. They will not return, is the description, into samsara. So they'll overcome Dukkha, in other words. Um, yeah, I just wanted to see if I could get a better
1: picture of
0: this. Mm-hmm. Awareness is not thought, is it? Awareness is not thought, Yeah. Right. <coughs> so we have thought, we have awareness, and we have consciousness. Mm-hmm.
1: Three separate
0: three separate functions of what we in the West have one sort of word for, called mind. This is part of the problem, is that, <clears throat> and, and I haven't overburdened you, because it's not the place to do it, with kind of Pali Sanskrit terms, but we have one word, <laughs> and it's generally mind. In Pali and Sanskrit they have numerous amounts of words which actually distinguish functions of something we have one word for. And so we can talk about the difference between citta and vinyana. Sometimes they're seen as synonyms, sometimes they're different. We can also talk about manas, buddhi, all kinds of other distinctions within what we would normally term, mind. the buddhi is intellect, for example, manas is the thought processes. And in other words, they have a process picture of something that we have a rather static word for. Yeah, when you hear the word mind, you tend to think of a thing. Don't you? I mean, I actually, you probably don't ask this week after I've gone on and on about it. <laughs> but I think initially, as we, we hear this word mind, we hear a static, you know, hear a stat- think of a static entity, where well, it isn't. It's this dynamic process which actually, when you break it down, is composed, for example, in the Abadana, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of terms which are related to the functions which are going on. And so awareness is part of that. It's part of the functions of what we call mind. And it's one of the more subtle functions of mind. But then it's going to vary from tradition to tradition how it ends up being defined in the end. But thoughts
1: themselves are not part of the mind, are they? Because
0: they are are sort of sensed by the mind. They are sensed by the mind, yes. In the other Dhamma traditions, certain thoughts are Dhammas; they are elements of existence which we bring up. In some
1: traditions, there's
0: people being attracted to animals. Right, yeah. Which is a similar thing. Not quite, I wouldn't want to get into this one. It's not quite the same. I think it's almost time to finish. This evening, I want to finish off on again a little bit of poetry in we'll fact settle it down um, make a reference to, this. yeah, I mean, I think this is a beautiful way of expressing what we are in terms of our impermanence, remember as impermanence and process rather than thing, and this is again the walker. And there's nothing more, perhaps, impermanent than the face, and what the face expresses, isn't that? It changes continuously. Some philosophers in recent European thought talk have talked about the, the infinity of the face. The face that expresses an infinity, rather than something which can be seen as a totality. So you, in a sense, always evade me, even with your face. And this is what the author says. And this is very short. I'm just quoting a tiny bit from out of the poem. Appearance ceaselessly comes and goes in their faces. As morning dew rises, we lose what was ours. The heat steams from us as from dishes uncovered. What of our laughter? What of the watchfulness? Of the heart surges, the building, the fading. Alas, that is us. It's a beautiful encapsulation of, really impermanent. That is us. Uh, that's all it is. The fading, the moving, the shifting, everything else. Nothing there. And that's the insight that we speak of. Nothing there other than what is happening. Okay, ten minutes to finish. <coughs> <coughs> Move into watching the cycle of breath, watching its rise and fall. Not controlling, not getting caught up, but just watching it. And as thoughts arise, don't worry about it. Witness them, notice them. Befriend your demons if there are demons there. Be kind to them. but let them go and bring yourself back to the breath. Being as kind as you can with yourself. No harshness. No violence involved. Just a gentle process.